Welcome to Accounting High. You guys did a show. Is it niche or niche? Yeah. It's yeah. niche if you're a cheese-eating surrender monkey from France, but it's niche to us Americans. But Thank way, you, Ron. Because uh, <laughs> I hear niche on the other side of this like, camera. I know. Yeah. Canada does niche. It's like, oh, I'm not. Ackerman I'm does not, niche. I'm, I don't know why. Um, He's hoity-toity. Here's what I've learned over my, whatever, 30 years, 40 years in this profession. I guess 40 years, not cheese. Mm. Coming up on 40 years in a couple of years. Cheers. The most profitable firms in the world, without a doubt, are all niched. Mm-hmm. Period. Classes in session, it's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, classes in session, it's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, classes in session, it's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, classes in session, it's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, kids, do you like operations? It's Wednesday, accounting high, talking systems and processes, talking shop about operational balances, accounting, workbench to workflow challenges, hybrid teams for Pete's sake, I'm trying to manage through screens, but I can't figure out which Zoom window's my next meeting. And Dr. K says, Acuity uses EOS. Uh-huh. Entrepreneurial operating system. Well, since 2012, my firm's been in the cloud. Join us as we go deep, I'll try not to run it to the ground. We're sharing profit and loss and managing back office. The tax staff just quit, tried to hire on LinkedIn, no luck. And scope creep team count cast, automate tax, compliance transactions, ID and bottlenecks. Come on, ops. Scotty, wait a minute. It's my firm, dog. I know, and I said you could run it however you want. Hi, classes in session. It's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, classes in session. It's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, classes in session. It's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi, classes in session. It's time for shopperations at accounting. Hi. Introducing the star of our show, Jason Ackerman and Scott Scarano. We're going to have a problem here. And we have super special guest, Ron Baker. Scott, the, the Ron, Ron Baker. Baker. Scott said that if once he got you on this podcast, we we're going to stop. So this might be our last episode. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'll, I'll be honest. I, I, I said, when we started this, I said, there's one just two guests that I want to have on and the number one uh, that I would love, you know, I'd be honored to have on. And the number one, Ron Baker, if we ever do get him on, I feel like my work is complete. I could drop the mic. And you know, after, at the end of this, my mic might drop after this. Well, well, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Thrilled to be here. I, I had the exact same feeling about a guest we had on early on our show. I told Ed after we were done, I said, Voice America can't could cancel us tomorrow, and I would be. Who was that? It was Thomas Soul. I love Thomas Soul. You're our Thomas Soul. It's beautiful. Thomas Soul is probably the world's greatest living economist. And is that where you got the name, the Soul of Enterprise? No, that came from another great economist, 
40-year mentor of mine, George Gilder, who wrote a book, The Spirit of Enterprise. And I thought soul had more definition and meaning to what we were trying to do with the show, which was to say that business was more than just materialistic. It, it had a soul. It had a spiritual component. Not, oh. not religious, spiritual. And there's a big difference between materialism and spiritualism. If, you know, materialism, if I take a violin into a lab, I can measure it. I can weigh it. I can, you know, get all those specs on it. And those can all be replicated by somebody else. But when Joshua Bell picks up that violin and plays it, and I weep, or I march off to war, that's spiritual. And I think enterprise, business in general, entrepreneurialism, all enterprise has spiritual component, which is the majority of what we do. We're interacting with other humans. It's highly spiritual. And what I mean by that is it can't be measured. I can measure a violin, but I can't measure the impact it has on me when it's played. It's an art too that soul Absolutely. is perfect you're the soul of our podcast it's like kind of like the question where the ship is is rebuilt i forgot how the fable goes or the, or the story goes but a ship leaves the dock on the other side of the world and then slowly the planks are replaced during the journey and then when it gets to the other end is it the same ship mm. right love it the soul is still there but the physical's yeah. been altered yeah it it's it's it, i i find that whole distinction fascinating I, I mean if you just think about today and the advances we've made we can build a bridge a building a boat or jet airplane 100 percent confidence it will fly stand sail <laughs> not collapse i mean darn near 100 percent. but when you look at business and you look at say marriages why do they have such a high failure rate? Well, it's because they're spiritual, not just physical. Yeah. Oh, that's it. That's it right there. So I also want to talk about where you're at, like as far as I think that you're a natural speaker. You, like I can go on and, and give a lot of compliments about how you go about this, but I, I kind of want to hear how you got started and what your ambitions were as a, as a kid to then end up like you're, you're a radio host now. I love that. Like that, that's, that's you're a scholar radio host. I see like as a professor, let's, I just kind of want to hear the, what your ambitions were as, as like a, as a child. Wow. Okay. Up. I'll lay this out. You guys are probably aren't going to believe me, but you can, you can verify this with my dad at 15. I knew I wanted to be a CPA and people asked me, how the hell did you figure it out at 15? I said, because prior to 15, when I was in middle school, I don't know, I was in ninth, maybe eighth grade. I'd sit at the table with my dad. Like Charlie Brown, my father was a barber, okay? So I learned business from the inside of a barber chair, watching my dad run his barber shop with a very, very loyal, long-term clientele. But he'd come home at night, and he'd have cash, and he'd have a stack of checks, and I would fill out his deposit slip because I could add a column of numbers very fast ever since elementary school. And one day, one night, we're sitting there doing that, and I look at an envelope he's got laying there amongst his paperwork, and it says Pazeni and Brinker, Certified Public Accountants. Now, that's a firm in Santa Rosa that still exists to this day. And I said, Dad, what's a certified public accountant? And he looked at me, he said, that's somebody who charges a hell of a lot of money. 
And that stuck with me. So when I got to high school, we had an accounting teacher named, by the name of Angelo Catalani. And he had a two-year accounting program, not just a one-year, two-year. And this guy would bring in CPAs to talk to the class about what it was like to be a CPA. And he'd bring in people from the AICPA or what. He always had speakers come in as well. He taught us how to do tax on top of just accounting. And I had a tax clinic that I ran for the school. You know, the kids would come in with their W-2s and I'd sit there and I'd do their 1040s. And I started a tax practice and I started an accounting practice. I did my dad's books. I did a bunch of his business buddy books. So I put myself through college running an accounting practice. Now, it wasn't CAS. We didn't have any cloud technology. I had a typewriter and an old adding machine. But guess what, guys? How did I price? I did a timesheet. Mm-hmm. I filled out a timesheet because every CPA I talked to that came to the, into the class, and my dad had a bunch of CPAs as customers. Now, here's the cool thing. When a CPA is getting their hair cut in your dad's barbershop, they're a captive audience for one hour. <laughs> I pulled up a chair and grilled them. Where should I go to school? What's the exam like? What classes? You know, blah, blah, blah. And, and they were very generous and they helped me. So I was kind of pulled through this two-year accounting program in high school. Third year, I was the teacher's TA, teacher's pet, basically. But I knew I wanted to be a CPA. So when I got to college and passed the exam, I knew I wanted to go into a big eight. I got into a big eight. I filled out a timesheet. And then when I left the big eight in 87, after two and a half years, and that's how you carbon date a CPA, by the way. You listen to how they say big eight, big six, big five, mm-hmm. big four. You can put them in the ear. Uh, so I joined at Pete Mark in 84 and got and left in 87. And I started my own practice with a partner who still runs it, Justin Barnett. And I figured out after about three months that the billable hour was a really customer experience because the customer never knew how much the bill was going to be. They were always surprised. Like we were sending mail fraud documents through the mail, an an invoice that just had a bill. And the client would either call very angry or come in very angry and say, why didn't you tell me it would cost this much? And my only response was I spent the time. So in 1989, there was nobody on the circuit talking about it. There were no books. There were no consultants, at least in our space, that was talking about what I then called fixed prices, but we just said, there's got to be a better way to do this. So we just started experimenting with fixed pricing. Now we didn't do all the things I talk about today, offering options, offering a value guarantee, all these different things came later, but we did lay out the fixed price agreement, the payment terms and the room for scope creep because I thought, Hey, change orders make complete sense here. I had contracting clients. I had, I had an auto mechanic, Uh, I said, they use change orders. It seems like a really smart policy. Why the hell aren't we? And I started experimenting with this in 1989. It allowed us to raise our prices, get a better class of customer, fire a bunch of low-value customers. It also enabled us to get rid of our timesheet, which our team members loved. And then in 1994, I started teaching this to my colleagues because I was so excited about it. And I started teaching for Cal CPA. And I've always known, again, since high school, that I wanted to write a book. But I didn't exactly know the topic. Well, when this hit, I landed on the topic of value pricing. And so I put out my first book in July of 98, after I'd been teaching it for a few years, The Professional's Guide to Value Pricing. That book went through six editions. It was published by Harcourt Brace, ultimately ended up at CCH after a couple of acquisitions. But it went through six editions. 
it sold 40,000 copies and it was a $150 book. And it kind of put me on the map globally and not just in the accounting space, but across all the professions that bill by the hour. And so by 2001, I sold my half of the practice to my partner and I started Verisage and I started consulting and writing full time. And since then I've published six other books and the radio show was launched in 2014. The Voice America came after me. They said, would you like to do a radio show? And I thought about it. I said, oh God, yeah, I've had the radio bug ever since I was able to get on the air in a Palm Springs radio station with a buddy, a CPA buddy of mine who knew the host really well. This guy had a three hour talk show drive, drive time in the afternoon. And I went down there and, you know, at the time I was teaching alternatives to the federal income tax. So the VAT tax, the uh, national sales tax, all those types of issues. And of course it was right up this guy's alley. And so he'd have me in the studio for like two hours and people would call in and, you know, I'd talk about how Sophia Lauren, you know, got nailed for tax fraud by the Italian government. And, you know, what do you do with Sophia Loren? Well, they, <laughs> put a, they put a bracelet on her and confined her to her home, you know, her mansion or whatever. You know, what the hell else are you going to do with Sophia Loren? <laughs> and I just had the radio bug since then. So when this Voice America thing came about, uh, I was like, yeah, I, I need to do this. And I said, but I want to do it with a co-host. And Ed was the natural guy because we'd been working together for so long 10 years or so at that point done a lot of courses together around the world we thought alike we we could read each other we have a lot of the same opinions although we do disagree on some things uh as i like to say if you think it's hard to disagree with ed try agreeing with him Mm. (laughs) Uh, it's even harder and then so the show was launched in july on july 4th 2014 and we've been going strong ever since yeah yeah i've heard good things about ed I want. To, I would like to have him on sometime too. I'm, I'm sure he'd on. come on. I'm my, sure he'd uh, come on. He'd love my to. My grandfather was buried with Charlie Brown, like stuffed animal. He had a thing for Charlie Brown. I don't know you mentioned really earlier. My grandfather had a CPA firm in New York, Frank J. Cool. Scarano CPA, and he drove my dad away from the profession. My dad was a CPA, mm. drove my dad away from it, but yet he stayed in the profession. But he does software now, so he's got a software company uh, okay. accounting for nonprofits. Um, cool, but. Yeah, I mean, this this is like part of our blood, right? The the sons of CPAs, Ackerman's, yeah, uh, at his dad's uh, firm. I, I yeah. grew up in Santa Rosa, which is where Charles Schultz was from, the creator oh. of Peanuts. Mm-hmm. So there's Peanuts statues all over the city, you know, they Snoopy and Linus and everything. He's got an ice skating rink and a museum there. But he used to come into my dad's barber shop. My dad didn't cut his hair, but one of his other barbers did, and you know, he he uh, he said he was just the nicest guy. Sparkly, everybody it. called him. You know, he sat there actually, and he was a big hockey fan, and he sat there and watched hockey, and he, he explained the rules to my dad because my dad didn't understand hockey all that well at the time. And he said he was just the nicest guy, you know? So that's cool. So, so Ron, I, I also, I live in constant fear that my worldview is wrong. I know you said that as well. <laughs> the question everything and i don't have a right or wrong or up or down and i go with the wind sometimes or i go with the most conviction and that shifts and changes so speaking to like the the tracking of time if if we're going to use that example i have uh, always been against micromanaging and trying to measure our outputs on 
the time it takes because time is just an illusion anyway like i was just on the right. west coast i'm on the east coast there's different times like how do how do you right, make up right. for the three hours that are lost right do i count that on my timesheet that i was in the plane for six hours right if you count for that or negative you know but i mean if we if we are going to go into the measurement of it i think all things being equal money and time are the two resources that might be the most powerful in running a business. And that's only because time is finite. And that means that when the day is done, you're not going back to that. So I, I, I don't know. The question, Ron, that everybody, you know, for me, when I'm like, we don't keep track of time and everyone asks, well, how do you know if you're profitable or how do you know you're making money on a client? That's kind of what it comes down to. So how do you respond right. to that? Yeah, you sure know, the you whole time the whole time and money thing. I mean, Benjamin Franklin well known for saying time time is money. He wrote a letter to a nephew, I think, advice to a kid and he was starting up a business. He said, "You know, if you spend a day at the beach away from your business, time is money." What he was really illustrating was opportunity cost. If you spend a day at the beach, you're not going to be working in your business and and earning a living. I don't think time or money is necessarily a resource. Time is actually a constraint, and we're all subject to it. You can't store it. You can't sell it. You can't hoard it. You can't exchange it. I mean, I can't sell you any of my time. If we could buy time, I'd buy it from a homeless person. I mean, what? Yeah. You know, it'd be very cheap. Unfortunately, we have to buy our time from really skilled knowledge workers who can command top dollar for it. And, and my mentor, George Gilder, has got this great theory, I think, where he says time isn't money, but money is time. Because like time, it's a constant, it's a constant measurement. And money needs to be constant. You don't want your dollar to float. This is the problem with Bitcoin, right? <laughs> Bitcoin is not a stable value. And that's not to say it doesn't have other wonderful uses. It's just when it comes to a unit of exchange, you want that to be stable so you can make long-term decisions. I mean, that old joke about the the son going to the dad saying, dad, can I get $5 in Bitcoin? Seven fifty. what do you need $12 for? I mean, <laughs> it, 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 it's, you know, it's fluctuating so much. So actually money is time, but that's a totally different thing and probably takes us down a rat hole we don't want to go to. Well, you know, the, the fact that, that time can't be replicated once it's gone, you can't right. print more of it. You can't, it's not something that can be, it's not a renewable resource. It's a bad measurement of value, just like weighing a violin is a bad measurement of the music that it produces. I mean, this is the problem. We're using the wrong tool. We're plunging a ruler into the oven to determine its temperature. You can't measure the value of what knowledge workers do based on the time of the inputs. In fact, I'd say any worker. Does anybody care how long it took Honda to make their car? No, nobody even asks. Now, people always fight back, and, and Jason, I haven't forgotten your question. People always fight back. Yeah, but Toyota cares how long it took them to build a car. Yeah, they do, but they know that. I mean, and, and they're, they're working to constantly improve it, obviously, to become more efficient and more effective. But when it comes to customer value, the customer doesn't care about that. Yeah. But They're measuring it for internal purposes, and that, that's not the point that you're trying to make. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, it's funny. Toyota doesn't have a cost accounting system. Doesn't have a standard cost accounting system. Never has in its 
corporate history since 1880 or whatever. Never. Because they use a different system of, of uh, they understand that, that cost doesn't determine price. Actually, price justifies cost. But let me get, let me get back to Jason's question about timesheets. Sure. Here, here are the four defenses of timesheets. And these are universal. They apply to every objection I've ever heard, except the one guy who told us the Lord doesn't want me to throw them out. And I didn't know what to say to that. <laughs> that, one, that's that one was good. That's the that we're going to drop off, yeah. That, that was good. Um, <laughs> so the four defenses are, one, we need them to price, which I think I've completely nuked by explaining the labor theory of value versus the subjective theory of value, that time has no place in value, right? I mean, I could spend 10,000 hours writing a book. Nobody buys it. What am I supposed to do? Go yell at the world and say, hey, you you've you got to buy my book. Look how much time I put into it, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? I mean, that that's completely ridiculous. Uh, so we don't need them to price. The second defense is we need them to determine the efficiency of our team members. How would I know if one team, team member was twice as efficient as another? This is completely ridiculous as well because I think people put on the timesheet what they think their boss wants to see, not what actually happened. So everybody I know who's ever filled out a timesheet has fudged it. They've either eaten time or borrowed time or <laughs> shifted time around between different clients to make it come out to where they're kind of within budget. Nobody wants to look like an idiot in front of their manager or their boss. So they're going to put on the timesheet what they think should be on it or what their boss should think uh, would think should be on it. And therefore, they're not accurate. They're not accurate. And I'll go a step further. A timesheet is not predictive of the competence, value, customer service ethic, professionalism, pride of a CPA. Timesheets do not predict the successful characteristics of a true professional. Not in law, not in accounting, not in advertising, nowhere. Because it's just a, it's a, it's an input measurement, not an output measurement. So the idea that we need them to track team member efficiency is completely ridiculous. The third defense is we need them for project management. And this is where my colleague Ed Kless has just nuked this out of the, out of the sky because he's a project management expert. And project management is all about forecasting, forecasting capacity in the future. It doesn't look back. It looks forward and tries to say, can we undertake this project and get it done by a specified date? Now, in order to do that, yes, you can project time into the future. I have no problem with that. I have no problem, Scott or Jason, with you handing a file to a team member and saying, please do this tax return. I think it should take you about a day or eight hours or whatever it is. Here's the thing. The project manager then doesn't care about whether or not your team member spent six hours on that, 10 hours, 12 hours. Now, look, if they spent 40 hours, they should tell you because obviously something's wrong. Maybe the data is bad. Something else going on. Yeah, there's something else going on. Or let me throw it another way. What if they spent two hours on it or one hour? Or 10 minutes, and you thought it should take them a full day. Maybe they did something really, really friggin' innovative. I'd want to know about that, too. Now, there's ways to capture that with after-action reviews, and we can talk about that. But here's the point. 
Why is it when you give a file to a team member and you say this should take about a day that that thing, that file stays in the firm for another three weeks until it gets to the client? You know, first in, first out. We also have fish, first in, still here. <laughs> it's it's the duration that the project manager cares about, not the effort, the duration. This is why FedEx and Amazon measure when the stuff drops on my doorstep. They don't measure how long it stays on the truck or in the air or at the sorting facility. That doesn't matter. They measure what matters to the customer, which is when does it drop on my doorstep? Did they get it there on time? They have this incredible service quality index that looks at 12 KPIs, and they're all how the customer defines the success of FedEx. Did they get my package on time? Is it not damaged? Did they invoice me correctly? I mean, there's, I don't remember them all, but they're in one of my books. And it's a phenomenal set of Turnaround, KPIs yeah. because it's all how the customer defines success. So the idea that we need timesheets to do project management is the equivalent of saying, I'm going to use my smoke alarm to time my cookies. Because by the time you see something on a timesheet, it is by definition, by definition, no longer manageable. Mm -hmm. And you're crying over spilt milk. We need leading indicators like FedEx and other smart companies have that are canaries in the coal mine that can help us stave off problems before they fester and before they become a, a bigger problem. And that's what we should be tracking. And since management attention is, you know, finite, we're measuring the wrong things by looking at time and using that for project management. And the last defense in, Jason, this is the one you brought up, how would I know customer profitability if I didn't keep timesheets? I don't want you to measure customer profitability. Customer profitability is an illusion because you're taking primarily costs that you're going to pay irrespective of whether or not you have that customer in your firm or not. Irrespective, you're going to pay your rent, you're going to pay technology, you're going to pay your human capital people. I mean, unless you're in a completely flexible labor environment where you're only using outsourced labor from India, the Philippines or something, you're paying your people a salary, you're paying them irrespective of what they're doing. So to try and allocate a cost to every single hour. Think about what we're trying to do. We're trying to take the rent. We're trying to take the toilet paper, the pencil lead, the toner cartridge, and allocate it per hour and do a P&L per hour. We're accountants for crying out loud. We should know that that's insane. <laughs> that's yeah, it's absolutely nuts. insane. It's completely arbitrary, and it's really crappy math. And this is my argument against cost accounting in general. It's crappy math. It's just crappy math has no basis to cash. So I think you need to look at what, you, what you're concerned about as a business owner of anything, of any business, is profit overall. You need to look at the portfolio. I, I want to maximize the profit across the entire company. I don't want to worry about per hour, per job, per customer. That's not how to look at it. Because if you have smart onboarding, if you have a good purpose, if you have a good strategy, you go after customers that you know are valuable and that are willing to pay for your value, then the profit and, your, and you have good pricing, the profit's going to take care of itself. The, the, the real question becomes how much money are you leaving on the table through weak pricing? And that can't be answered with timesheet data or right. gap data for that matter. So I, so I know I rambled, but that it's, no, no, it's, you're good. it's a you're complex good. I issue. I always ramble. Yeah. I don't want to talk at all this session. 
That's amazing. Now, you said leading indicators, right? What are the leading indicators that you should measure? Any indicator that you can pull off a financial statement is by definition lagging. Would you agree? I agree. Yes, absolutely. It's got to be. Financial statement is backwards anyway. All of absolutely. It's, a lag. it's everything it's, is a lag on there. Absolutely. We're we're we CPAs. We're just we're historians with really <laughs> memories. Okay. Uh, we we go in. You know, this is the joke about the auditors. We go in after the battle and bayonet the wounded. That's what we do. We're fighting the last war. We're like the worst of the generals. We're fighting the last war. We're fighting last year's numbers, getting them, trying to get them all together. So it can't come off a financial statement. Now, even if you had real-time cloud-based accounting, well, then your KPIs would rise to the level of what economists call a coincident indicator. They'd be real-time. But they're still not leading. Leading has to be a leading indicator has to be a theory. And the theory is, what does the customer care about? That's essentially why FedEx measures on-time arrival. So my favorite leading, leading KPIs in an accounting firm are turnaround time. Are we getting the stuff back to the customer at our promised date? And by the way, good firms promise the date to the customer. You will get your stuff on this date, period. And they, they strive for that just like FedEx strives for it. Um, the other one I really like is... HSDs, which are high satisfaction days that your team has. And now social media, this is so much easier to track. But it's just one of those days where your team member or you pump your fist and go, yes, this is why I do what I do. This is what I was born to do. Maybe it was a thank you note from a customer. Maybe a customer came in, brought you a gift because you helped them through a difficult time. Whatever it is, most HSDs are generated by customers. And therefore, we have found a correlation between number of HSDs in a given period and profitability. Because if you're getting a lot of HSDs, you're living your purpose. You're not just talking about it. You're, you're walking the talk. You're living your purpose. You're helping your customers, whatever your purpose is. Another one, of course, is net promoter score. You know, uh, some firms use it. I think it, it has its uses. It's a theory. I mean, the accounting overall it's still a lag though it, it's, it it is a bit of a lag and there's all sorts of uh survey issues with it i mean the cpa profession as a whole has something like a 24 score which is awful when you consider apple and amazon are in the high 80s but be that as it may another one i really like is the value gap which is what could we be doing for our customers that we think they need that we're not doing for them and how are we going to close that gap in the coming time period and that's another way to to alter behavior but it all these kpis whatever a leading indicator it's got to focus on the outside of the business it can't be internal the airlines for example use on-time arrival lost luggage and customer complaints those are the three kpis of every major airline in the world except perhaps north korea's which is the Theirs is always a hundred percent. Yeah, mm -hmm. but but you know, you look at those KPIs. You're not going to be able to pull them off an income statement, and everybody has to be able to understand that what the KPIs are: the pilots, the flight attendants, the baggage handlers, the mechanics. Everybody knows how important it is to get that plane in the air and get the passengers on their way. So if the the food's not on board, the you know the drinks aren't, the bar's not stocked. Screw it. Give everybody a free drink or give them a free movie and get the plane the hell out of there because what 
passengers really care about is getting to their connection or their destination on time. So f uh, twice on this one trip, I had two flights canceled like an hour before the flight and I got nothing from them. I got That's no brutal. apology. Absolutely nothing. I had to fly into LA instead of Santa Barbara just to get there at a reasonable time. And I had to rent it. Like all of this, their KPIs don't mean if they can't even get the plane in the air. Too. That's true. That's true. You know, yeah. the cancellations, all of that, that's it can be a nightmare. It, are you a, any type of frequent flyer with them? Do you have any Not really. I, I don't have an allegiance to an airline. I'm like, and every time I go on certain ones, it's always some form of bad experience. Like Delta has been great. But anytime I go on America or United, there's something, there's some issue. And, and Southwest is usually great too. But it's always something with these, with American and United. And, and again, I can't like always put my finger on it because it's usually something different. But yeah, that's, I hear you. No, it's a, I try, I used to travel pre COVID, traveled a lot. And of course, you build up an allegiance to an airline when you sure. do that. And I'll tell you, they, they do treat their top flyers completely different. Like if they missed a connection or canceled the flight on me, they'd make it up somehow. They'd either get me home on another airline or they'd give me miles or, I'd get an apology with a credit, you know, whatever. But obviously, they're I think that's right. To different customers, but also, like to your point, you usually do use airlines a lot in your analogies of pricing and of you know offering different options. And they do they do have a master. They've mastered that. Most of them have the little things that they can add to generate a higher ticket price or a higher per customer. But yeah, like they. If you are in the premium subscription with them and you're a loyal customer, they're going to reward you. And you have a different experience of that than somebody like me who's just kind of going with the wind, like wherever I can fly to with the shortest distance and, you know, or the shortest, like less layovers or not less layovers. Right. Less you know connections. I mean? Less yeah. connections. Yeah. And it's different for each city I go to with different airlines. So, um, I don't have yep. that private jet yet. <laughs> I used to be very enamored of the airlines. I would say now that they've fallen out of graces on pricing. I think they've taken it too far with some of their ridiculous nickel and diming on baggage oh, fees God. and other kinds of crap. I, I'm not a big proponent of that. I think right now the best pricers in the world are the hotels. Yeah. Hotels are doing pretty good. I think... Disney's a good pricer on, on most Disney's of the stuff an excellent pricer. Yep. Uh, Disney did great the way I just recently went there and, and the way that they're, you know, if you don't see the value and get in a shorter line, you don't pay extra, right? Yep. And if you want to get on that ride and save yourself a couple of hours in line, pay 15 bucks and here we go. You're first in line at this time. I know. It's awesome. Yeah. So, Apple so what, too. Are the, yeah. what are the things that CPA firms can do to be better pricers? Stop looking at time. I think by getting rid of timesheets, it forces you to think differently. I do think the timesheets, the cancer, the billable hour is a symptom of the cancer, which is the timesheet, this idea that time measures everything and is the be all and end all of how we should run our business. I think that's the real problem. If we cut that out and we look at other things and look, I'm saying if you get rid of the timesheet, it's not like we're going to run around with like chickens with our heads cut off and we're not going to replace them with anything. The timesheet and the billable hour were introduced in a law firm in the United States in Boston, Massachusetts by a lawyer by the name of Reginald Heber Smith in 1919. Has the world changed in 103 years? <laughs> and if you think it has, like I do, 
then obviously maybe we have some better systems and better processes today. And so here are the things that replace a timesheet. I think a firm needs a value council. Now we can talk about that, maybe even a, a chief value officer, depending on the size. But a group of people dedicated to pricing across the entire firm that sees the entire portfolio, just like an investment banker sees the entire portfolio, and that studies pricing, that does experiments with pricing, like you were saying, Scott, about being you know, a scientist in the lab coat. You're constantly experimenting and tweaking your pricing. We have been uh, doing that for five years. Yeah. And we're and, still and, doing and, it. And, yeah. and, you, and, and it's never going to stop. It's, it's never going to end. Gonna it's stop. A, yeah. It's a guiding star. And, and you're going to have fixed price agreements and you're going to have, you, you might use change requests for scope creep. You're going to have proper project management the way my buddy Ed Kless teaches it. And by the way, project management is not pricing. We've conflated the two by joining them by the billable hour. We conflate project management with estimated hours. But as Ed teaches, that's ridiculous. Because well, you Jody can be at, was on last week, and he does something similar too, like the way that he does their time tracking. You know, Jody Jody Grunin mm. from Summit CPA. Right, right. I think he does it really great. The way that they are tracking it, almost as a leading indicator, to then determine what they're going to sell. Um, yeah, I'd be curious on, on on what he's doing. And then, of course, KPIs. Uh, and I hate, I hate the term panacea or silver bullet because I'm one of these guys that I believe there are no solutions in the world to our problems. There's no solution <laughs> to the healthcare crisis. There's no solution to immigration. I mean, pol- no single solution. Uh, n- right. It, and, and not even multiple solutions because here's the problem. There's, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Yeah. You'll never hear a good economist ever, ever, ever say the solution to this problem is. They'll say the trade-offs are. If we do this, then this is why Harry Truman wanted a one-arm economist, because every economist said, well, on the one hand, well, on the other hand, <laughs> he said, send me a one-arm economist so I don't have to listen to these people anymore. But as close to a panacea solution as I can get is the after-action review. If firms do after-action reviews, probably the best learning tool ever devised by mankind, then I think they can replace two things. If that's all you did, don't even do all the other things I mentioned. If you just brought in after-action reviews, you could replace two things. Annual performance appraisals, which are a complete joke. I have no idea why we subject people to these. And this is kabuki theater on steroids more than the TSA is. But it, and AARs after action reviews can also replace timesheets. Yeah, and we use the leading indicators we use aren't aren't necessarily time. Actually, we use it is related to time. We use how many hours of sleep as the leading indicator. If if you've gotten more sleep, it tends to produce a better. Week. I like that. One even that I like even more is if we're going to do timesheets. Let's do them on the customer. How much time? Two things. One, how much time did we save them from doing the crap that they shouldn't be doing? Just like my mechanic saves me time working on my car, my landscapers, mow my lawn. So let's have the customer do the timesheet. And also, and I think this is critical, and we don't think this way, especially now with cloud, we tend to think that less interaction is better because it's more efficient and we can Mm. get through more clients. But how much time do our customers spend with us? Yeah, we do that one too. How many? So one of our leading indicators is the number of clients our team has met with that week. Yep. Not the, the time I, they met with them, the number that the they number. met with. 
right? That was also one of my KPIs from the old days was a number of customer contacts, but yeah. also not just the number, but the quality of those interactions. Because, you know, we, we talk about this as being a relationship business and it is, it's all belly button to belly button. Even in the days of COVID, it is a relationship business. And yet I think we pay lip service to the relationship because if you look at what we monetize and if you look at what we measure, it's all transactional. It's number of hours, it's scope of work, it's deliverables, it's outputs. It has nothing to do with deep transformative experiences that we can provide to our customers, you know, taking them from where they are to where they want to be, some desired future state. And this is why I, I think the subscription model is ultimately going to replace what I'm going to call value pricing 1.0, because I think the subscription model puts the relationship at the center of the firm. And that's all important. And that's what we pay lip service to. So let's align our business model around what we claim is important, which is the relationship. The other thing that, and I don't know how you feel about this, but I put a lot of value on the team being intentional about their day and planning it. Mm. So one of the indicators, and I know this is going to sound bad, but it's how many days that they time blocked. And that's just a term we use to plan their day mm -hmm. and be intentional about what they're going to do that week, plan their week, and then plan their days individually so they don't get stuck with the constant bombardment of interruptions and the back and forth that things can derail you from what you're really doing. Because if you do plan on sitting down and doing a tax return and you get interrupted three or four times, what's that going to do to your timesheet, right? Like that's, uh, what's that going to do to the outputs that people are measuring afterwards if they didn't necessarily plan their day and manage interruptions? So yeah. I've gotten a lot of grief for that from Ackerman, but I think it's, it's a really good way for them to feel in control of what they're doing and be a lot more purposeful and intentional too. Yeah, you know, Frederick Taylor, who... If, if you know anything about our show, you know we can't stand Frederick Taylor, the, the, the <laughs> father of so-called quote-unquote scientific management. He was an absolute fraud. None of his studies replicated. He used a 40% fudge factor, so all of his crap about efficiency was just BS on stilts. He used to say the system is the most important thing. And in a knowledge firm, the knowledge worker is the system. So... I don't think any two knowledge workers approach planning their day or their week the same, just like no two surgeons approach an operation the same or any two hairstylists approach a, a style the same. It, and I'm, I'm f completely flexible if they, however they want to plan their day. If you know, I, I agree with you that multitasking, our brains aren't capable of doing so. If you are interrupted three times while doing a tax return, that's incredibly distracting. If you're trying to focus on something, especially something complex, like when I'm writing a book, there is no way I want to be distracted by email because to get back into the flow and just the whole thing of the book, there's, I'll, I'll just it'll kill me for another half hour or whatever. Context shifting yeah. will kill you more than anything else. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So. But I leave that up to the knowledge worker. If we've hired smart people, they want to do a good job, they're knowledge workers, they're going to climb down an experience curve. You know, one of the things that I just loathe is when, we, we, when, it, when I see accounting firms, you know, hire these efficiency experts, people that come in, you know, like the Ninja Six Sigma Green Belt Turtles, uh, and they're going to make us all more efficient. And this is so the wrong focus <laughs> in a knowledge organization because quite frankly, I don't want an efficient heart surgeon. 
I want an effective one. Yeah. And relationships aren't efficient. You're either strengthening a relationship or it's weakening over time. There's, there's nothing in between. It's either dying or growing stronger. And, you know, we can be efficient with things. I'm not against cloud tech and all the great technology that we use. That's not, we can be efficient with things. Totally agree with that. We should have the best of everything. But when it comes to people, you have to be effective, meaning do, do the right thing. I've never heard anybody define their marriage as efficient. I love that. So to go kind of on this, like if you're not keeping track of time, I don't know how to say this without using time, but you know, I want my, my team members kind of how you were saying, like, I don't want to have any of the stuff that they have to do, like keeping track of time, dress codes, stuff like that. I want them focused on the client. And I guess how much of their job should be kind of just learning and innovating and figuring out stuff on their own. Like I think of Google and they say you can spend like 40% of your job just like doing whatever you want to do to kind of try and develop and learn more. And I, I really want to try and put that in a, for CPAs, but I haven't found a good way to do that yet. Well, I, and, and I wrote a lot about this because I studied Google. I studied 3M. Uh, uh, Gore-Tech is another one that does this. It's 20%. Uh, they give their they give their yep. you know their their scientific people twenty percent Google time. That's basically one day a week. We started running around telling CPA firms you need to do the same thing, and of course people do the math. Well, that's eight hours a day times fifty weeks times our billing rate. We'd lose. Are you kidding? Look how much money we'd lose. But if you look at the innovations that have come out of those that Google time, as it's called, it's Google Maps, Gmail. Google Books. I mean, there's a whole list of, of what's come out of that Google time. If we want innovation, if we want creativity, and we pay lip service to this, we want it, we say we want it, it is the antithesis of efficiency. To be innovative and creative is the antithesis of being efficient. I need to be able to put my feet up on the desk and read a book and stare out or stare out into the sky Try and do that in a CPA firm. I did it in Pete Mark in 1984, 85. I'd be sitting at my desk like after lunch or something in my cubicle and some idiot put me in the front cubicle and a manager or a partner would walk by and I'd have my feet up and I'd be reading a book and they'd say, Baker, what are you doing? I'm reading this book. And I, it wasn't a Harlequin romance for crying out loud. And he said, don't you have anything to do? Yeah. Well, what are you doing? I'm reading this book. And he'd say, well, you know, and then he'd give me some asinine tasks. I'd go foot the phone book or something. If you want innovation and creativity, you can't do that. What would have been better if it is if he would have said to me, what's the book about? It was a Milton Friedman book for crying out loud. I mean, it, it was like, but you get penalized for that because why? Because you're not billing time. This is what's so pernicious about even measuring time. It puts people into this binary mode. I'm either billable or I'm non-billable. And when I'm non-billable, I better feel guilty as hell that I'm not billable, whether I I'm at my yeah. kid's game or whatever, sleeping. I love the non-billable codes. Like they have oh, like, there's like a ton creativity of creativity time, non-billable yeah, code. Yeah, innovation <laughs> time. There's a great video that a Canadian advertising agency did uh, oh, I forget what they call time. They developed an app called time. It's hysterical. <laughs> I'll try and send it to you guys uh, after the show. Maybe you can get into the show. Uh, 
Yeah, I forget the agency who did it. Oh my God, it, it's a brilliant. It's called Time. I, I know it's up on YouTube. But what is it? What does it do? Or what did they? What is it? Oh, it's, it's just a funny video about an app that they that they <laughs> developed about tracking time when you go into the bathroom. It, it's a we'll find it. It's, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah, find it's that. really yeah. funny. That's so funny. Uh, and and so, you know, people watch those videos and they laugh their butts off, and I think, well, laughter is a confession. You know, this is kabuki theater, and yet this is the biggest metric in the profession. It's crazy. So one thing that we do, if, if we do, we have a Schultz hour that we, you know, everybody should, and they're highly encouraged to do this at least once a week where they do nothing for an hour except a pen and a piece of paper, maybe go on a walk, See the, but whatever mm. it is. This is what do I don't get. Nothing. It's like, you're, you're, you're scheduling them. You're not allowing that. You're like forcing creativity. Yes. On you them. have to force people to do that. You have to, because they won't do it. Otherwise, most people won't. I have to for schedule myself to do it. I, I force myself to do it. I think it's a necessity and I put it on my calendar so I know to do that so time just doesn't pass and I don't get the time to relax, like to meditate or to do something outside of it. I actually have to schedule that. I, I feel like it's, at least for me. You, you know, um, I've, I've heard that too, Sky. I mean, I, I listened to Jason Blummer, who, who I'm sure you guys know, and he talks about how him and his partner block out time I, I guess they use what is it the entrepreneurial operating system method or whatever, yeah. but EOS, they're big yep. proponents. Yeah, EOS, big proponents of blocking out time. Like they block out, you know, I think they spend like two days a week on on working on the firm, right? The strategy yeah. and all of that, uh, and they and he does it by time time blocking. Now, for me, I could never do that. If, <laughs> if you said to me, "Here's here's the time that you can write," you know, I'm working on a book. And here's the time that you can write. I would violate that until the cows came home. I, I write when I'm inspired. It could be in the middle of the night when I wake up with a, a you know, some type of uh, epiphany or whatever. But, oh, but wh whatever, wh whatever, whatever works for you. I'm, I'm all for. I'm all for. Well, some people have that burning fire of like they can be very self motivated and they have that fire, you know, itching to do something. But some people are very routine and they want to have some form of they structure. They want structure, absolutely. Yep. And yeah. and I think for the most part, accountants want the routine. This is why we love checklists. That's how accountants are. Right? Yeah. yeah they, we they want like our that. checklist, man. We don't make me think. Just give me the checklist. Don't make me <laughs> tell think. me what just I need me to the, do and I'll do give it. Me the, yeah. Give me the four steps. And my mind doesn't work that way. It never has. But I, I totally understand it. So, yeah, whatever yeah. works for sure. But here, here's the other point about capacity, and and you know the twenty percent time. Now this is going to sound completely heretical, and you're probably going to push back on me. But I don't think any firm should run anywhere near sixty, sixty-five, seventy percent capacity. We should always have spare capacity in our firm for the same reason that hotels and airlines always have seats, last-minute seats available for their most valuable customers that come in at the last minute i mean never the fill thing, the cup up to the brim never always leave, never yeah. never you, and 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 we try and run our people at 90 95 we only hire when we're busting at the seams and people are working overtime i think this is a sin because if if you called your dentist and with a toothache and he said well i can fit you in in a week you'd be pissed you want your dentist to have capacity at the spur of the moment, just like you want your doctor to, we want all of our professionals to be there when we need them on demand. And I'm telling you, that world exists already and our customers expect that. So if they need, you know, I remember my colleague Dan had a, a client who was trying to 
buy his dream piece of property to build his dream home and he was going to auction the next day and he needed a personal financial statement you know review or whatever the hell it was called at the time that only a cpa can do on his personal you know net worth and he said dan i need it tomorrow he called dan at 7 p.m dan was at a base his son's baseball game and dan got a team together now he had people in india and he had partners and they got together and they pulled an all-nighter and they got it to the guy that's now not an unusual story and if we can't do that then we're not coming up to the level of an Amazon or a Google and we're falling short on a customer experience. So we've got to have spare capacity because if we don't... But that's if, balance right there too. Like what you're saying is is being having the ability to do that, you got to ha- be able to flex in both ways. Like So you got to be relaxed, but also very intensely focused and driven when it is time to deliver. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a big fan of the word balance. I mean, to me, balance is for oh, ballerinas. God. I hate it. I Ballari- hate it. <laughs> ballerinas, it's for ballerinas and tires, for crying out loud. Well, I, the reason I, I say that is is I went in I, the to- total I, opposite direction of giving them too much capacity. They don't really work on Fridays. Maybe they work half a day on Fridays. Obviously, never weekends. But we have way too much capacity. Um, when I say way too much capacity, we really do. We did this year have too much capacity and it was too loose that i had to find i had to go back in the other direction a little bit because it was it was giving people too much freedom right and then too much all, freedom yeah I, wow that but, but you know scott i'd rather have that problem than the other one yeah that that's I, not a that, bad problem to have that, everybody's that happy. i tend to see plus i've seen that firms that do have spare capacity their team members seem to be motivated to fill those holes and go out and get clients or referrals mm-hmm. or, or find extra work for existing customers I found the team members to be very, very helpful in filling those capacity. They don't gaps. harbor any resentment when there is something to be done, and they right. tend to be generally when, happier whenever there is an, a, cha- a change that we're going to do, or, or any type of system update or change. Like they're they're ready to take on other things that normally maybe they wouldn't be, because if you're obviously if you're overworking everybody, they're just going to be resentful for anything that you kind of right. introduce. And that's what I see in most firms is the, we're just, and, and I don't think it's burnout. You know, people talk about the mental health issues of burnout, depression, alcoholism, suicide, divorce, blah, 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 all these things. And I, that, that's a problem in all the professions. I read that about doctors, lawyers, accountants, but I don't think it's burnout in accounting firms as much as it's rust out mm. because we're giving them the same crap year after year after year. I mean, I used to open up a file and start to do the budget or a work paper and look at last year's and it was the exact same date except just a year before it's like oh my god it was like groundhog day that's that's rust out you got to constantly challenge your knowledge workers with more challenging work rather than you know i hear people that you know firms that have like a th- they'll tell me well we do 2010 40s and th- to me, this is kind of like having a McDonald's inside of a Ruth's Chris, right? You just, I mean, that's just stupid from a positioning <laughs> strategy standpoint. It's like, why do you have 201040s? Well, we need it for training ground for our new people. It really teaches them how to do a tax return, how to self-review. And I get that. And, and I think that's a valid argument. Here's the problem. But, but they've been working in it for five years. That's a one yeah one season thing. That's a boot camp. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you, you know what? It. Spin it out in a different firm. Create a McDonald's. Put it across the street. Give it a different brand name, and don't let it corrupt the mothership 
Yeah. It's trying to be a boutique special. Don't come work at uh, work at our place with your McDonald's uniform on. That definitely right. like yeah, yeah absolutely. So, Take that cap off. No context shifting. Well, how, how do you think? Because you know you've got a traditional CPA firms that are doing all that, all the compliance work. I guess give us some advice on transitioning away from that. Oh, I think I think getting out of advisory or getting into advisory out of compliance, I think, is really difficult. I mean, look, I, this is nothing new. Ever since I've entered the profession, we've been talking about compliance is dead, it's going to die, blah, blah, blah. And it, it, has, it has not died. It's only grown more. It's, it's like a hydra head. It just, you know, we chop off one and four more grow in its place. The tax code's complex. Compliance is getting more complex, not less. Compliance is always going to be there. And that's where most CPAs are very comfortable. And I think advisory has failed. We have not become advisors in the CPA profession, by and large. We don't own that space. McKinsey, Bain, Boston Consulting, they've been eating our lunch on that for, for decades, literally. I think it's very hard to shift the mindset from a compliance person to an advisor. And I think the biggest challenge for CPAs in that, in that pivot is this. When I'm an expert, whether it's gap or tax, and a client asks me a question, part of my self-identity, part of my, my self-esteem is all wrapped up in be, being able to answer that question. Now, if I can't do it off the top of my head, I'm going to hang up the phone and go look it up, and I'm going to call back the client, and I'm going to get them an answer. Because you ask me a question, I give you an answer as an expert. But consultants aren't paid for answers. They're paid for the questions. I mean, mm -hmm. Take a look at the McKinsey consultants. These are 22-year-old snot-nosed MBAs. They know diddly about running businesses. They go into these businesses that have been in the family for you know three generations or whatever. They know nothing. What they do know and what they have are fantastic questions. And as Socrates said, half the wisdom's in the question. But... To shift from leading with your knowledge, like we do when we're an expert, to what Peter Drucker said with consulting, you have to lead with your ignorance. You have to play Lieutenant Columbo. I'm confused. Can you help me on this? Uh, you can't be an expert. You've got to ask the right questions, and that's an art in itself. And I think CPAs have a big I think I think we have a big problem with that. We're the well, we have to understand, too, compliance is the painkiller and advisory is the vitamin. And it's a lot easier for somebody that's a pharmacist to be selling the painkiller than the vitamin. And there's no shame in that either. Because no, there's the compliance not. has to get done. That's the hinge for most of Absolutely. our clients, at least. They're coming to us for the compliance. They're coming Absolutely. to us. That's what they want to pay for. So make sure we price that correctly, too. Like, what do you think the then, do you think CPA firms should go towards advisory or we should lean more into what we're good at i think only only probably about a fourth maybe a third can do it effectively and i mean real advisory this idea i mean take a look at how firms classify advisory revenue or consulting revenue it's glorified tax work or or other <laughs> dare i say it cas right client accounting <laughs> oh, services God. cas is not advisory and I'm probably the only guy in the profession. I don't know. You guys may feel this way. I'll just run Well, they've tried you. to change the A to advisory now. Yeah, instead yeah, of yeah, <laughs> I, I know. Client, but, and I hear other 
podcast hosts talk about CAS. I know it's growing like Topsy, 20% a year, blah, blah, blah. I, I know outsource CFO, part-time CFO, CAS, blah, blah, blah. The firms have big departments on this. I understand it. I know the logic for, for a company to take its, you know, front office and make it or, or take its back office, its accounting, whatever, and make it somebody else's front office. I get I get all that. Here's my problem with client accounting services. It's the ditch digging of CPA work. <laughs> you know, our talent didn't go to five years of college and 150 hours of education, pass a CPA exam to do bookkeeping. This is going bookkeeping. backwards. We are retro. Yes, very much so. If, if you hired bookkeepers for this, I would have no problem. Just like when physicians hire personal or physician's assistants or when lawyers hire paralegals. Like I was just at Digital CPA Nashville. Unreal that, to me. They are thinking this is the future. Unreal to me. And, 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 and you guys, there's one of the big reasons why we have a talent crisis in this profession. Yeah, I'm going to go to five years of college so I can come out and do bookkeeping. 150 but, hours. But, but I can do it in the cloud and I can have all these apps like T-sheets. Who gives a This is crappy work. I, I shouldn't. It's not crappy work. It, it's the equivalent of surgeons piercing ears. Now, if I take a group of surgeons and put, set up a kiosk in a mall and say, you guys are going to do body piercing. I bet you I could be profitable, but would I be more profitable if I put them into hospitals with ORs and let them do surgery? Which one would be more profitable? I mean, it's an opportunity cost thing. This is not the best use of our intellectual well, capital. Well, what do, well, what do you think, Ron, what, what, what should CPA firms be doing? Let, let a thousand <laughs> business models bloom. Well, you just I, said, I, 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 no, well, I'm not saying you don't do CAS. I've got a colleague, his name is Paul Kennedy. He runs O'Byrne and Kennedy. Now, he wants to be a business advisor. I, I love his, he, he kind of uses this as a tagline, just he, orally, but he says, we start where other CPAs leave off. Yeah. So now he, you know, because he wants to do that high end of the value curve advisory on strategy, marketing, you know, all of those things. But like you said, in order to do that, you need clean books. So in order to be a CAS customer of his, you have to sign up for the advisory. He will not take a client on just to do CAS. That's not going to happen. You're only going to get them to do your compliance work if you're a business advisor. And if you stop the advisor work, they'll probably let you go as a client because they're not just going to do CAS. Some of the best firms now are doing that where they are, if they do effective advisory, they do not take on a client for compliance only. They will do all the compliance, and they should. It's, it still can be very profitable, but they lead with their best foot forward, and, and that's selling advisory. You take that on, then sure, we'll do everything else for you. We'll do everything with subscription. else for you. You know, it's that right. you'll, we'll bundle all of it, but we're not going to sell you just the the hamburger and without the meal. Right. You know. Um, right. And I I like that approach. The the other thing I would say with Cas and you know, I read these books about it and, you know, they profile these firms and these firms have 600, 800,000 CAS customers. Hmm. So I got to tell you what, if you've got more than a hundred CAS customers, there's no way you're doing advisory. There's Look, no I've way. learned this the hard way this year. We have about 110 clients 
and we're not doing effective advisory at my firm. You can't be. We, we're, do, we're, we're not doing it at all. <laughs> we, we, as much as we may think we are and, and we say that we, we used to, we're not. We're not doing any of it. The firm I mentioned, and in, in they're out of London, OBK, he's had 75 customers for, I don't know, the past 14 years. And he's kind of busting at the seams with that. That's That's even putting stress on him. But that's it. He's not growing for the sake. He's not growing the number of customers. He is growing average price per customer. That's gone up. That's gone way up. He's probably growing his margins. Seventy-five customers, but it's only got. He's only got seventy-five customers. He probably doesn't do anything on time. He's probably not even paying attention to time. It, but he, no, he has no timesheets. He's hundred percent value pricing. But here's the other thing he does, which I find very radical. He sits down with every customer at the annual meeting, and he probably has his customers on fiscal years, you know, just for their purposes, their fixed price agreement or whatever. So he doesn't have to meet with everybody all at once, but he sits down with every customer. And his first question out of his mouth is, should we continue this relationship? And his logic is, look, nobody owns a customer. So let's put the 800 pound elephant in the elevator, you know, let's put it on the table and let's, should we continue this relationship? Are we adding enough value? He said, sometimes I want out of the relationship. He said, what happens is that re- it's like a marriage renewal. We're renewing, you know, it's, it's, we're renewing the covenant between us. So he puts every client at risk every year, which I, which I love because most clients, when they first hear it for the first time, now they're acclimated to it. They know they're going to hear it. But when they hear it for the first time, they're like, no, you're not going to fire me, are you? No, no, yeah. I don't want you to. You know, they they actually they you they judge lean your next move them. how they rea- react yeah. to that too. Like you judge yep. what how you're going to play the next move based on how they react because it's well, no, we're not going to end it, but let's fu- let's make this better. You know, let's regardless. But sometimes you want out because you can't do anything more for them, or you know they're going to sell, or or you know life changes. So uh, you know sometimes you just want out of the relationship. So I just I've always thought that that was really cool, even though it's very counterintuitive. So one thing you said earlier, and you were talking about the just a lot of the different things about business, but I think that what was coming out was there's an art to a lot of this. There's an art to business. There's, it's not very scientific when it comes to pricing, when it comes to measuring, and I don't think a lot of people give art enough credit that are in our world. I think there always has to be a uh, if this, then that approach to everything. And um, I don't see the the essence of things being, like the takeaways from a lot of things are very literal. So I, I don't know, like, you know, I, c- I could go on about, you know, my, my thoughts on this, but what do you think about art? Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right, Scott. I, people believe business is a science because numbers are involved. It's something that another great economist, Friedrich Hayek, called scientism. Just because there's numbers involved makes us think that, it, well, it's science, it's data. I mean, take a look at the financial model you know, that we use. Black-Scholes, well, all of them were completely worthless uh, when the mortgage meltdown happened, right? The bottom line is, if you believe, as I do, that all value is subjective, then value can change as fast as people change their minds. And therefore, to think that you can measure all this and have some grand unified theory like we're a bunch of physicists is absurd. It Value is a feeling. 
It's not a number. It's a feeling. Why did I pay $3,500 for my Apple computer here sitting in front of me when I could have bought a Dell or an HP or something else for, you know, I don't know, one-fifth the price, one-seventh the price? You know, it's a feeling. Whatever guilty pleasure that you indulge in, whether it's spa days or a typical uh, luxury brand type of clothing or watch or car, why? Why do we spend all this money? Because it's feelings. Values feelings. It's subjective. And there's no way to quantify it. Now, price obviously is a number, but I think price is more of a story and it's more it's more of a psychological game than a mathematical game. Sure, we can have pricing equations that try and op give the optimal price and have elasticity studies and all this BS, but it's really about psychology, which is why the three pricing options make so much sense to help people, to give people context. But here are two rules. Here's my grand unifying theory of everything. All value is subjective and all prices are contextual. And if you understand that, you, you understand, as Ed Kless says, business ain't science. He, he actually got that quoted in Harvard Business Review. He wrote him a letter uh, back in the days when he wrote letters, and they actually printed it. Ed Kless, business ain't science, which is a great, which is absolutely true. I mean, we can we can study this the shopping like it's a science. You know, we can build numbers around, but that doesn't make the study of shopping a science, right? It's kind of a bastardization of science to call business science. It's not because we're dealing with humans. This is this gets back to the soul, right? I weep when I hear the violin played right? It's not because of all the measurements and the weight. It's because of the art, the, the, the soul, the, the, art, the, the, the spiritual, mm -hmm. the, the spiritual, the stuff that can't be measured. What drives me nuts more than anything is people say, well, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. Well, that's other. Can, can anybody tell me, has anybody ever measured the effectiveness of management? And how do you do it? How, how do you measure the effectiveness of a C CEO? Boy, I'll tell you, if boards could figure that out, they wouldn't have the problems that they have with CEO turnover and all the other C-suite turnover. So it, it, this, this business isn't a science because value is subjective. You know, one day we're fondling our iPads and the next day something else comes around. We, we customers are absolutely fickle. We're fickle. And, and you can't change that. And I wouldn't want to change that. And here's the other thing about it. You mentioned the art of business. Creativity and innovation should take us by surprise. You know, I go to these conferences and I listen to these futurists, right? And I'm thinking, you're a futurist. You're just absolute charlatan. If anybody who calls themselves a futurist is an absolute charlatan. Here's why. Innovation and creativity always take us by surprise. Always. Otherwise, they could be planned. I mean, if the first guy who invented the wheel knew what a wheel looked like, it wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have needed to invent it. The, the first guy who invented the wheel, by the way, was an idiot. It was the guy who invented the other three that was the, the genius. <laughs> but, but, but that's the other thing about creativity and innovation. It always takes us by surprise. If it didn't, socialism would work. And an economy could be just run by a bunch of computers with algorithms. Obviously, it can't be. So that, that's the great thing about humanity is our ability. You know, that's the only unlimited natural resource is our, our, is our innovation and our creativity. Yeah, it's context. I love a lot that. of it too. Art's context. Like it's, a lot of it's psychological. True. Let, let me say one more thing about, because I, like, I do like saying business is an art, but, but with one twist, and it's an important twist, 
I think there's a huge difference between entrepreneurialism and art, and it's this. An artist is showing me how they interpret the world, maybe through a painting or a sculpture or whatever. It's, it's, they want me to see how they interpret something, which is fine. That, that's wonderful. It can move me to a new place. It can conjure up all sorts of feelings. But an entrepreneur has to be, by definition, altruistic. They have to focus on the concerns of others because, let's face it, nobody walks into a store to please the owner right? You walk into the store. Think about your grocery store. You never tell them when you're going to show up. You never tell them what you're going to buy. You never tell them how much of what, what you buy you're going to buy. You, you don't give them any details. And yet you, we, we all walk into these stores and expect them to have everything that we want on whatever whim. And we never give them any chance to plan. And for some reason it, you know, it works. It's, that's kind of a miracle if you think about it, but that's because we walk into that store to please ourselves, not the store owner. And so the entrepreneur, the smart business person has to be other focused. They can't be inward focused on their interpretation of the world. Now they can change the world. They can change our futures. It's Steve Jobs, Thomas Edison. I mean, Henry Ford, they all, they all created the future we all live in uh, and they continue to do so but they still have to be concerned with the wants and needs of others and they have to humble themselves. Well, if they expect to get paid. Right. If they expect to make right. any money on it, that's what you know, that's that's where you have to really be focused on what is somebody willing to pay and what's their, you know, what's their desires and and sell that sell that curb appeal, right? Yep. If you were going to start an accounting firm, kind of what would you focus on? Oh boy. Somebody asked me, if you were to start all over again, what would you do? And I think I prattled off three things. Obviously, I would never, ever, ever keep timesheets. Obviously, I would offer uh, fixed prices or you know, and, and based on value. So value pricing with options, which I did not do in the early days of, of my dabbling in that. And the third and probably most important, well, let me say four things. I wouldn't take all comers. You know, in the early days when we all start a firm and we've all been there and we know what it's like, we have to feed, we have to, you know, put food on the table and, and make money. So every client's a good client. I had a very simple test for client onboarding. You know, did they have a checkbook? And if I put a mirror in front of them, did it fog? And if it did, then they passed the test and they were a client. Now, if, if the mirror didn't fog, I'd still look for a state work. So maybe there was one, you know, one way I could bee sting them before they went out. But, the, but when you have, when that becomes your client selection criteria, what happens is over time, you know, birds of a feather flock together. D clients refer other D clients, F clients refer other F clients. That stands for friends and family. You never get A clients that way. And so my client selection criteria would be much higher. I would have established minimum prices a lot sooner than I did. And I would have put that price way the hell up above even the local competition because it attracts a different type of customer. But the most important, and those are all pretty important, but another one that I think is probably the most critical is I would have niched. Mm -hmm. And I think you guys did a show. Is it niche or niche? Yeah, It's yeah. niche if you're a, cheese eating surrender monkey from 
France, but it's niche to us Americans. But thank way, you, Ron, because uh, because I hear niche on the other side of this like, camera. I know yeah. Canada does niche. It's like oh, I'm Ackerman not. Ackerman does niche. I'm, I don't know why. I'm not caving I'm, uh, into that. Um, he's hoity-toity. He's hoity-toity. Zero percent French. Got it. Got it. Uh, <laughs> but but here's what I've learned over my whatever 30 years 40 years in this profession I guess got 40 years now geez mm. coming up on 40 years in a couple years cheers the most profitable firms in the world without a doubt are all niched mm -hmm. period I have a guy he was actually my first senior at Pete he does nothing but dentists that's it he can handle a dentist from womb to tomb, right out of dental school. He goes to dental schools. He gives talks, tells them how to build a practice, how to start a practice, how to buy into a practice. He can handle anything that happens with a dentist, that, you know, divorce from the partner, divorce from their wife, whatever, expansion, new offices, growth, new, new specialties. He's seen it all. He's seen it all. But that's all he does. If anybody comes to him from a referral, that is not a dentist, he sends it to another colleague of mine because these are usually high wealth individuals that other dentists refer and he's turning them away left and right. He's giving them to my other CPA buddy and that's all he does. And he's the most profitable firm I know, seven digit net. He's a sole proprietor with 12 team members. Yeah, I love that. Now, 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 look, that's not my only criteria for a, a successful life is how much your bottom line is. I, I, I'm all a true believer if you want a lifestyle practice, you know, if you only want to work three months out of the year, whatever, whatever your, however you, you have to design your happy. firm to design yeah, you, your life. Absolutely. Like, yeah. And I'm completely, I do not think the bottom line is the only metric that matters. It's not. But if you're interested in what profit, it, it, what drives profit, it's focus, right? I mean, because it takes less energy. You know, an incandescent light and a laser beam take the same amount of energy, but one can bore a hole through steel because of its intent focus. And just over and over, it's confirmed every day, the specialists uh, do the best. I mean, we would all fly to Rochester, Minnesota, to go to an oncologist at the Mayo Clinic that dealt with our cancer diagnosis, the type of cancer we had. We're not going to do that for a general physician. We're going to Google our zip code and find somebody local. So you get a broader geographical range of customers. You get more interesting cases, more interesting issues to solve or po possibilities to pursue. And you earn more money. So it widens your geographical base. I mean, you, you probably know there's, you know, there's lots of CPAs now, but one guy I know that specializes in microbreweries. That's all he does. He writes in their publications. He speaks at their conferences, and he, I think he's in Florida, and he's got microbrewers around the world. He's got clients yeah. in Europe. He's got clients in countries he doesn't even know the tax laws to, because he can outsource that to a local accounting firm, but he can handle the business side of the microbrewer and help them think about things like a consultant advisor, whatever you want to call it. And he gets paid big bucks for that. And that's hyper focus. What, the niche, the, when they say the riches are in the niches, I know it's bumper sticker thinking. Uh, and I usually hate that, but in, in this case, it's true. I, I should have niched. My clients didn't have anything in common except the fact that they were my 
my customers. Yeah. <laughs> that was the only thing they had in common. I should have focused. And and you know what? If you if you go into any firm and you take a hard look at their client list, you'll see that they are they are already specialists. I bet they have a cluster of doctors or authors or restaurants or whatever it is. They usually have a cluster of those together. And if you just carved those out and got rid of everything else and and really made a go of that, your life would be so much easier. So we're part of a franchise, and that's been my vision for the franchise. It was always location-based for each office, mm-hmm. accounting and tax, location-based. I think, and, and I've, I've been preaching this for about three years, if everybody did that, cut out and found their best foot forward, the client that they want to serve and define that, that's the future of a group of offices that are, you know, all servicing, you know, tax accounting, but everybody finding you just described it basically, you know, everybody look at their client base, find the client you want to work with, find the future persona. And that's your, that's your niche. And that's what you, that's who you're going to serve. That's who you're going to sell. And you, Figure everything else around that, everything else around that one client that you're going to sell. That's so, awesome. Yeah. So how do we get, you know, there's so many CPA firms that are still keeping track of time. The big firms, like. Oh, God, why time? How, why do we, <laughs> so here's one quote. Here's a quote, Ron. A money's most intrinsic value is it gives control over our time. Over our time. Yeah. I. To me, that's kind of the definition of wealth is you get to do what you want, when you want, how you want right you have complete freedom uh you're not you're not chained to a business this is this is a great dichotomy in business because if you look at people like mark zuckerberg or elon musk or bill gates you know their wealth if you think about it is really amassed that they're tied to because they're so good at investing it and growing it jeff bezos and richard branson they earn more of it and that they're, they're tied to it. They're not out there consuming. Sure, Branson owns an island, but it's nowhere near what he could be doing with that money, right? They're constantly reinvesting it. So, I, but I think for us, you know, non-Branson types, non-Bezos types, wealth to me is, is, is basically freedom to do what I want, to design my own life and, and work on my own timeline and not be tied to anything. Now, that doesn't mean I can't own a business, but it, that business should run itself and not be 100% dependent on me. It can be somewhat dependent on me, but it shouldn't, shouldn't be 100% dependent on me. Because I've, I've been quoted to say, it's about money until it's not. So to be able to have the freedom to create all of that, you have to have the money first. You have to be able to have, you know, and, and I guess there's, there's not, it's not a black and white statement, but... It is about money. That's the Maslow's hierarchy, you know, of of where we're at and, and of our firms too. So, yeah, I think you know these people that cite these happiness studies that you see that say, oh well, once you get to seventy five thousand dollars, an additional twenty five grand is not going to make you any more happier, right? And they cite these countries that you know are below seventy five or at seventy five or whatever. I don't buy that for a minute. I you know I do think that work is important. I think work is how we serve one another. It's how we serve our fellow human beings. Uh, you know, I don't want to retire. That's our purpose. Yeah, we, it's, have, it's, we have our. We pick our purpose. Absolutely. You know, we've had uh, a rabbi on the show. He's my rabbi, even though I'm not Jewish. Rabbi Daniel Lappin. He's been on the show four or five times, I think five. And he loves to say, 
cite the Hebrew word for work is the same as the Hebrew word for worship. When we're working, we're actually serving one another. We're serving another one of, you know, in his terms, God's creatures. And, and I, I think that's incredibly noble way to look at it. And he's a big believer that you should never retire. And I just sent you guys the link to the YouTube video time. The time. All right, Ackerman, what's your time question? You can ask it now. Well, I mean, we've kept him on a long time, so. No, I just, that's all right. Time. I just, I guess. He's got everything, value. Everything I, I'm, not, say, I'm not counting yeah. time. I'm not counting everything time. Everything you say, I 100% agree with. Why do all these firms not do it? It's a great question. That is a good one. It is a great question. It's one I've obviously I've given a lot of thought about. In fact, my, the last chapter to my my most recent book, the implementing value pricing, deals with exactly that. If this is all so good, why aren't we doing it? And I think it's as you can imagine, I'm not a monocausal guy, so I, I don't give one explanation for for a phenomenon like this. But it's very very difficult to change the business model of a profession. And I'll give you guys a story that I think really illustrates this well, how, how hard it is to change the thinking. You know, economist, uh, there was a, one economist, his name was uh, Herbert Simon, and he coined this term called satisficing. Mm. So it was joining satisfy and sufficient together, and he called it satisficing. It's actually a Northumbrian word. It does exist. And he said, People aren't out to maximize profit or optimize profit. They satisfice. They do good enough. You know what? It's good enough. And I think the billable hour and the timesheet is satisficing. It's good enough. You know, we understand it. We know it. Our systems are built around it. Our customers are familiar with it, even though they don't like it. It's a crappy experience. They understand it. If they about the bill, then no, they'll probably get a knockdown on the rate or they'll get a knockdown on the rate if they negotiate, whatever. Uh, they're satisficing. So we don't we don't strive to to maximize and optimize and, and all of that. We satisfice. I think that's a big part of it. The other thing is, if you think about ulcers, if you think about 100 years or more of diagnosis from doctors, what causes an ulcer? And the medical industry had a consensus. Well, obviously it's stress. Stress causes ulcers, right? We've heard that our entire life. And there was these two doctors in Perth, Australia, who said, well, that's a crappy theory because you, if you dig down deep on anybody's medical history, you're going to find stress. <laughs> life is stressful. So what the hell? It's like blaming an airline crash on gravity, right? It's crazy airplanes are designed to defy gravity so you can't blame change on a constant they had a different theory about what caused ulcers they thought it was bacteria in your gut so they were in a teaching hospital and they developed a cocktail of antibiotics and they were getting phenomenal results they tried to publish these results in the lancet and the american medical journals australian journals they tried to speak at conferences Nobody would listen to them. A couple outback idiots from, you know, the, the Australian outback. What are they? What are they? Uh, you know, who, who's their trial? Kangaroos and koalas? I mean, this is crazy. We're not going to listen to these bozos. And nobody paid them any attention, respect. The, the colleagues shunned them. They said, what a theory. There's no way that's a, a bacterial infection causes an ulcer. 
one day the guy, one of the doctors got so frustrated, he walked into his lab. They're in the teaching hospital. He's got all his you know students there. And he picked up the Petri dish that had the bacteria and he drank it. He said it tasted like sewer water. And he gave himself an ulcer. And then he proceeded to cure it with their cocktail. And now people said, whoa, these guys might be onto something. And they started slowly letting them speak. Now, this all transpired, by the way, between the late 80s and the, the late 90s. So about a 10-year window it took these guys to convince the medical profession that ulcers were not stress-related. They were bacterial-related. They went on to win the Nobel Prize for their discovery. And it's commonly accepted that we, we no longer treat ulcers the way we did. And... Here's my question. It took these two doctors, medical professionals, evidence-based profession. You talk about a lab coat. These guys are the epitome of evidence-based. It took them 10 years to convince their colleagues of one finding, one theory change. 10 years, over 10 years, actually. How long is it going to take us to convince us that we don't need timesheets and we don't need the billable hour? Probably not going to happen in my lifetime. Although... We have made great progress. I think we've already hit the tipping point, but you mentioned the big firms. The big firms will be the last dogs hanged at the party. They will not give up their timesheet. I've tried. I've worked with them. Uh, I've been in them. There's just no way. They, they hear me speak about that, and they think I'm on a different planet. But there are a lot of firms below the Big Ten, say, that are starting to go down this road. So we're already at the early majority of firms that have adopted value pricing somewhere between 30 and 40 percent maybe we're still in the um that change the, curve is starting it, 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 to tip yeah 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 the innovators we're probably at the innovator level with the timesheet issue mm-hmm. i think we're above 10 percent of firms that have di- completely gotten rid of them and it's mostly been the smaller guys you know the people that have started up maybe taken over their dad's practice and said i don't want to practice like my dad did ah. yeah that's uh, they're well, more nimble is, more agile yeah yep I know that's the way Jody Paydar did it. She took over her dad's practice and said, "No, no, we're not. Gonna, we're not going to bill hours. And we're not going to do timesheets." And and mm-hmm. we see a lot of that. Well, Ron, you've been amazing. I hope one day when they create the Nobel Prize for Accounting, you will be the first person to win it. <laughs> wow, <laughs> I, I I'm going to talk to Sweden about that. Uh, yeah, cool. I'll talk to the Academy. But yeah. you've been amazing, Scott. Any f- final question from Scott, if you have one, before Ron? goes back to writing encyclopedias on accounting. No, my questions are too big. I, <laughs> well, I've got back. a lot we'll, yet. We'll have you back if you'll come back in a, in yeah, a yeah, few Yeah, we, we should talk about subscription because I do think that's the next iteration yeah. in the business so that, model. That was actually yeah. what I wanted to talk about so today we'll was subscription, but I think- We'll, we'll tease you know, subscriptions. Yeah. We got let, the baseline me, now. I'll tease it this way. When people say- because we hear this a lot now, especially with CAS. Oh, we do that on subscription. What they're saying is we take an annual price and we divide it by 12. That's not subscription. That's not a subscription business model. It's not based on a financial relationship. The subscription business model is totally different. You have to go to the market in this business model with a superior offering than what you're offering under say value pricing 1.0. It has to be a superior offering. You have to do what Walt Disney used to do at Disneyland. You have to plus it. You have to Mm. plus the experience. You have to plus the offering. And 
If you're not doing that, you're really not doing subscription. Plus, you have to constantly innovate. Without changing the price, by the way, just like you know Netflix and Amazon and all these other subscription businesses that you may subscribe to, they come out with new versions, they drop new episodes, whatever. You don't see your Netflix price change every time they drop a new you know season of your favorite series. That has to, so the innovation has to be baked in. So there's a lot more to subscription than just a monthly payment. I love that. You're coming back. One, one, Ron, awesome. Tell us where we can find where we can listen to your radio show and follow you and buy your books and all that stuff. Awesome. You the radio show you can find at thesoulofenterprise.com. All one big word, thesoulofenterprise.com. And it's got all of our shows. We've done 370 now, uh, dating back to 2014. And you can also, there's a Patreon channel. So if you want to subscribe to the Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE. And you can join us and be a member of our community. We put out bonus content. So we do an, a, an additional show or shows for our Patreon members. And they get other perks and we get have wine and cheese get-togethers and all that. People can also find me at verisage.com, which is the think tank that I founded. And we have lots of resources up there. I'm also a LinkedIn influencer, so you can follow me on LinkedIn. I've got over 100 articles up there on all these topics that we talked about today. Over 200,000 followers, too. Yeah, over 200,000 followers. And I'm on Twitter at Ronald Baker. And since everybody listening to this show is a CPA probably, that means you're a colleague. So email me at ron at verisage.com. I'm happy to continue this dialogue. And just thank you guys for having me on. It's a blast. No, you've been amazing. Great. Thanks, you guys. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, kids. Do you like operations? It's Wednesday accounting. Hi, talking systems and processes. Talking shop about operational balances, accounting, workbench to workflow challenges, hybrid teams for Pete's sake. I'm trying to manage through screens, but I can't figure out what Zoom windows my next meeting. And Dr. K says, Acuity uses EOS. Uh huh. Entrepreneurial operating system. Well, since 2012, my firm's been in the cloud. Join us as we go deep. I'll try not to run it to the ground. We're sharing profit and loss and managing back office. The tax staff just quit. Tried to hire on LinkedIn. No luck. And scope creep team count cast. Automate tax, compliance transactions, ID, and bottlenecks. Come on, ops. Scotty, wait a minute. It's my firm, dog. I know, and I said you could run it however you want. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi, class is in session. It's time for shoperations at accounting. Hi.